We'll look at Psalm 6 today, Psalm 7 next week. Benji, who's our worship leader today, will be given a sermon, Psalm 103. 103, so you get you know, a couple more psalms here. And then uh, after that, I'll pick up and start through the book of Revelation. So, um, do you fear God's anger? Now, that is a loaded question. Contrary to most of the world, Neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament portrays God as harsh and cruel. When Moses wanted to see the character of God, this is what he experiences. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who passes before him. So when I ask you, do you fear the anger of the Lord? I'm not asking whether you think God is harsh and cruel. Because he is not. Nor am I asking you whether you understand the fullness of the gospel. You are loved in Christ Jesus. And we all struggle to know the depths of that love. And the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So theologically, at the cross, God's anger against your sin has been fully quenched. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is true that to be constantly in fear of God's wrath could be a denial of your faith in Christ. But, that being said, David, here in Psalm 6 and in many other psalms, proves to us that a strong faith in God's covenant love does not remove a healthy fear of God's anger. You see, in Psalm 6, David is afraid that the anger of the Lord is against him. The thought that he has done something to anger the Lord drives the entire psalm. And in fact, the possibility of incurring God's anger is that which is David fears the most. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both, both body and soul in hell. So the fear of God's anger is connected to our awareness of guilt. Like a teenager who knows they have done something wrong. Some teenagers can't relate to that. Right, right Coleman? You can't ever relate to that, can you? Um, 
When you know you've done something wrong, you're afraid of being caught and afraid of what the discipline might be once you get caught. So when we do something wrong or think something wrong or have some wrong desire within us, we fear God's punishment. And if you, some of you people are a lot older, you might be able to remember this if you think back, but I certainly do. Remembering that moment where their parents are going to find out that you've done the wrong and you are waiting for them to like lower the boom on what the punishment is. That is an excruciating moment. What will the punishment be? How long will it last? I've got a really funny story, but I'm not going to tell it here. Uh, you can ask me afterwards. It was one of my highlights of my uh, high school years. But anyway, when you are disciplined by your parents, hopefully they tell you the reason for the discipline, right? And hopefully your parents tell you when the discipline is going to end. The same thing is not true in life. You don't get a notification from heaven, this is why you're being disciplined, do you? And you also don't get in that notification how long it's going to last. Now, to complicate things even further, not all suffering is discipline, right? Sometimes God takes his children through hardships for other reasons, for his own glory, to, to, to help you so that you can help somebody else in their time of need. I mean, there's lots of other reasons. The whole book of Job makes that clear. Jesus taught that the person born blind, neither his parents nor he sinned. So, I mean, it's very clear that that's not always the case. But sometimes we take those passages and we turn it too far, we push the pendulum too far, and we, we try to tell ourselves that uh, there is no suffering that is sin, that is discipline. And that's wrong. God uses the trials of life to discipline us. Now, when God disciplines us, his intent, his purpose with his children is always positive. Discipline from the Lord is not, I'm going to use big term here, punitive justice. It is not the, the sentencing of a judge to give you 10 years in prison for the crime that you've done. When God disciplines you, it is not punitive justice. God is not giving you what your sins deserve. Discipline is a means of character formation. See, if God were to give you what your sins deserve, you would be in an eternal hell. God does not discipline His children for their condemnation. He uses it to reconstruct them. It's an expression of His love. I won't read it today, but Hebrews 12 makes this perfectly clear. And the more I understand this, the more I don't like it when we say, God forgives your sin, but sin has consequences. 
Because when you say that sin has consequences, you're basically just saying, yeah, that's the leftovers. Like, you know, it's just, it's just there. You just got to live with it. It makes it sound like it's just negative. But what's going on with consequences is God is using often the consequences, you call them that if you want, but he's using it in a positive way to mold your life to be more like him. Okay, this is, this, I'm trying to lead you up to where we are at the beginning of this psalm. Theologically knowing the truths that I've just told you is not the same thing as living through suffering. Did you hear that? Sometimes we think that if we just know all the right theology, then we won't suffer. And life won't be hard. It doesn't work that way. If the discipline that you are experiencing, i.e. the suffering that you're going through, if it increases in severity rather than decreases, and if it continues in duration rather than ends, you will begin to question whether the discipline has crossed over the line from loving discipline into full-blown, God is really mad at me and I might be under his wrath. This is where David finds himself today. With that being said, let me read the psalm. Psalm chapter 6. To the choir master. Sounds so peaceful, doesn't it? To the choir master. With stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. I'm going to try to read this with the emotion that I think it deserves I apologize in advance that I don't know that I could actually express the depth of the emotion that this psalm deserves. Oh Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord. For my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. 
And the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. May God bless the reading of His Word. Five times in four verses, David says, O Lord. These five statements to his Lord are, they help us to feel the weight of despair that he is feeling. The very beginning of this this prayer actually sets the entire tone of the psalm. Psalm 6 is really the first penitent psalm, it's a psalm of penitence. confessing sin before God. There are others, but this is the first one in the Psalms. And in this Psalm, David's words imply that he has indeed sinned. Nowhere in this Psalm does God or does David accuse God of being wrong. He doesn't declare his innocence like Job does. Instead, he assumes that God's pouring out of possible anger is just. He is pleading with God that it would not cross the line between loving discipline into the discipline that's full of God's anger and wrath. That's what he's praying for. And that's a a strong distinction that I think we all struggle with in life. That's why I'm taking the time. I mean, we all expect to go through some trials. We all know that, yeah, God loves me. He's just taking me through a hard time. It's okay. It's when the trial gets so prolonged and so challenging and so difficult that he feels like he's going to break under the weight that he's starting to think, well, maybe, just maybe, God is really angry. Now I want to stress to you, David is a tough warrior. He's not a wimp that's just kind of, oh, I can't take it, God. This man's tough. He's not afraid of pain. He's not afraid of suffering. But he has a fear of God. And if he is con- becomes convinced that whatever he's experiencing is only the beginnings of God's full wrath and anger, it petrifies him and he doesn't want that to happen so if you know you're under god's loving discipline oh he's working in my life that's good if you for a moment begin to think that he's really angry with you that's going to end in your destruction do you see the difference here that's what david is wrestling with and david in the psalm doesn't even tell us what the sin is I assume it's before David and Bathsheba because that's in Psalm 51 and he explains it there. This is something before that. I don't know if it's a particular sin he committed. I don't know if it's internal desires that he just feels like, man, a true follower of the Lord would not have this desire. I don't know what it is, but he knows there's something that potentially could make God angry with him. 
And I think David is purposeful in not telling us what it is because he wants you to identify with what he's saying. See, as you sit here today, and I know this because I counsel enough of you to know that this is something that you think about sometimes. You have sins that speak to you. You have sins that tell you that you deserve God's wrath. They tell you that your sins are different than the sins of the person next to you in the pew. They tell you that you are worse than them. And they tell you that they merit God's anger. And in your heart, you know that they do. And when you start going through wave after wave of trial and suffering, they tell you that you are getting what you deserve. God is no longer working to construct you. He is working to destroy you. You see, David has reached the end of his rope. And I think if you understand David's depth here, the depth of his suffering, I think it would make you uncomfortable. In fact, I think if one of the believers said, hey, let me talk to you today. Let me tell you what's really going on inside of my heart. I think it would make us feel uncomfortable. They said what David says here. You see, David has lost his assurance of God's favor. This is another fine distinction. I'm slowing down on this because this is hard to understand this. David has lost his assurance of God's favor. The trials that he's experienced have driven out this great assurance of God's love towards him. But you know what they have not driven out? And you'll see this throughout the psalm. They have not driven out his faith. What does he do? Does he run from God? Does he get angry towards God? Or does he humbly cry out to God? Look at verse 2. Be gracious to me. Brothers and sisters, if you are doing well today, if you are feeling the presence of God, if you are feeling victory over sin, if you are like experiencing uh, fellowship with Him and just feel like you're doing well in life, your, your one prayer is not, be gracious to me. But if you have lost intimacy with God and you feel like your sin is winning, and you experience pain and suffering and depression, and you think that God is absent, then the only prayer that you have is be gracious to me. David tells us in that very verse, I am languishing. <laughs> you, ever, you ever go up to someone, how you doing today? I am languishing. <laughs> they would turn and walk the other way. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon gets close to what's going on here. A sense of sin had so spoiled the psalmist's pride, so taken away his vaunted strength, that he found himself weak to obey the law, weak through the sorrow that was in him, too weak 
perhaps to lay hold of the promise. Wow. I'm not equating all the despair of our day with David's time. But there's a reason why people in despair want to commit suicide. David is deep enough here to want to end his life. But he doesn't. He cries out to his covenant Lord. David says, heal me, O Lord. My bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. David may be physically sick here, but I think when he says my bone is, is, bones are troubled, I think he's kind of saying, you know when you get really, really, really cold and you say that you are cold down to the bone? Every bit about him is saying, I am undone. You see, this, this kind of grief challenges me. Because it feels to me like it's a denial of faith. One could only be this low if they were denying the promises. And I'm telling you, David is not denying the promises. You see, what I see here after I've studied this, and it's challenged my heart because I love to be a, a man of strength. And here we get present presented to us David in his weakness continuing to believe he says to the lord oh lord how long and he doesn't even finish the sentence he's so weak he can't even say how long will you keep treating me like this he just says how long how long you see david didn't come to this point in a week or a month Somehow, the waves of trial have worn him down. And so in verse 4, David comes to the place, probably the closest you'll ever get in Scripture, to a, a man telling God to repent. When it says, turn, O Lord, in verse 4, that's the same word that with a human it would be repent. Now, of course, David's not telling the Lord that he's done something wrong, so they just say, put turn in there. But it's basically, God, I need you to change your, your attitude towards me. I need you to like give relief rather than suffering. I remember how weak I am and lift it up here a little bit, Lord. I need help, okay? But look at what he says is the cause of David, or of God doing this for the sake of your steadfast love. This is a said. This is God's covenant love. This is the love that God says, I am a covenant-keeping God. I will never change my position towards you in that. I am faithful. I am righteous. I will continue to love my people. I will be loyal to you. See, I love this. See, because what we want to tell God, God, take it easy on me. I will do better. David doesn't say he's going to do better. 
He pleads for grace based on covenant love. Now, just I'm going to bring this into the New Testament at the end, but I'll bring it to you now. The pinnacle, the climactic statement of God's steadfast love is found in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. So it is right to say it is in Christ, in Christ alone, that David places his faith. And it is in Christ, in Christ alone, that you, if, you're in, if you find yourself in David's condition, that is your only hope. Verse 5 is kind of David just kind of thinking about, what if God doesn't change his mind? What if he doesn't come through? Well, I'm going to go down to Sheol, and in Sheol there is no praise of God. Now, I don't want to go into all this. Basically, Sheol is the place of the dead. Uh, there are some psalms that speak of God, uh, of the psalmist wanting to be ransomed out of Sheol. The, the uh, Old Testament uh, Jews did have a sense that God, that Sheol wasn't the ending place. Uh, but it was just this, this abode of the dead. And he's basically saying, I want to praise you that you've answered prayer. You haven't let me die. I want to keep walking with you in this life and praise your goodness to me. That's what he wants to do. And I love, again, Spurgeon. He just, he's just so great. Churchyards are silent places. Ever walk through a graveyard? The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. He says, if I die, then must my mortal praise at least be suspended. And if I perish in hell, then thou wilt never have any thanksgiving for me. Songs of gratitude cannot rise from the flaming pit of hell. And so he basically says, Lord, I want to say thanks to you and praise you. So you've got to relent and not discipline me in your anger. Verses 6 and 7, I've read them once, but I have two competing emotions as I read these verses. On the one hand, I am comforted by them. The depth of David's despair gives me hope that I am not alone when I go through depths of struggle. David's uh, cry helps me to understand that my weakness is, is often what God uses in His saints. And God often will take us deeper into pain and sorrow than what we ever thought we could handle. And because David's cry is given to us in God's inspired word, it helps me to know that my God understands me. He's not indifferent. He understands the depth of your soul in despair. And He has compassion towards you. On the other hand... David's weakness just makes me uncomfortable. David is the king. He's the one you look to for strength. And David is unraveling. And I wonder how people must have thought when David brought this, hey, what do you think of the new hymn I wrote? (laughs) They're like, "Uh, David, um, you need some counseling? I mean, I think that if you were one of David's advisors, and I don't know where he is at this point, but he's got people around him. He's got duties to do. He's leading men. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a leader. That's who he is. 
And you go up to him and you say, David, how are you doing today? He probably would have said, I'm, bad. I'm, I'm good, how are you doing? And he would be doing all his duties. And every night he's going to his bed and he's weeping. Is that not true of you sometimes? Externally, you're kind of putting it together. Internally, your soul is languishing. Somehow, innately, we understand that to be this vulnerable would just like, it would not feel good to people. And so we just say, I'm not going to tell anybody. I would tell you a couple things. God understands the true nature of your heart in a way that nobody else can understand. Also, I think in David's vulnerability, it helps us to understand that if the king can be vulnerable, we too can be vulnerable. And I would also say that you just can't trust every believer with this sort of thing. But you should find someone that you can trust the depths of your soul with. The last line of verse 7 really strikes me. David says, my eye grows weak because of my foes. I, I tr- you know, paraphrase it, I can't get my foes out of my head. By foes, I don't think he just means his physical human opponents. I think he means uh, the human opponents. I think he means his physical weakness. I think he means the, the tug of the old nature in his heart. I think he means the spiritual foes of his soul. All of them. He says, I can't, they, they're big and God is small. David can't get his mind onto the, the, the goodness of God. All he can see is the foes and he's like, I, I'm lost here. See, this is the same David, although very different David. This is the same David that said, Goliath, 10-foot giant, let's go get him. At a better time, David says, I'm going to take that foe on and I'm going to whoop him. Now, here's a David drawn out in weakness. And he can't, he can't. Beat the enemies at this point. Kidner says it this way. Depression and exhaustion as complete as this are beyond self-help and good advice. What counsel would you give to David if he came to you feeling like this? I believe this psalm is giving you David's counsel. He's giving you what he has found. And it is a counsel that does not depend on your strength. Verses 8 and 9. David speaks to the demons in his mind. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. And the Lord accepts my prayer. We should not take David's statement, depart from me, as some sort of exorcism. As if he has this newfound authority and he's commanding his enemies to leave him. I like to think of it more in these terms. God is giving, or David is giving his enemies fair warning. You would do well to depart from me right now. Even in the moment when David is languishing, David has become convinced that God's anger and wrath are not his stance towards him. See, remember, I told you the five O Lords at the beginning. In this verse, you have three more O Lords, or the Lord. And what are they all? The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my prayer. The Lord accepts my prayer. See, I don't think there's been anything that's changed in David's situation. I think he's just as much languishing in verse 8 as he was in verse 7. Only one thing is different. I believe God's steadfast love is greater than my fear of God's anger. How does David even know this? I just think David is crying out to God. And he knows that if you're crying out to God, sincerely, God will answer you in his love. In other words, he's saying, I have not actually experienced God's relief yet. I really don't know when it's going to come, but it will come. Because I am no longer under God's I may not have the strength to get rid of the enemies in my head, consuming my thoughts, but the Lord will deal with them in His time. Look at verse 10. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David doesn't know when it will happen, but he knows it will happen. Now, ultimately, the destruction of all of your enemies will only occur when Jesus returns. But I think that there's some measure of relief that God does give us in this life. He doesn't just continue the downward spiral until we're dead. There's this sense of, God, give me some some light at the end of the tunnel. Lift my soul. And I think he does do that on a regular basis. Many of the Psalms will recount God, they'll be thankful that God has lifted them out of a dark period. And so I think that happens. See, the book of Romans is a theological treatise that God's anger is no longer over you. Romans 5, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you think that those statements just do it for you. But I love now Psalm 6 as it tells me, 
it's okay for me to actually work through the theology in my life. You will throughout your life wonder if God's angry with you. Go to Psalm 6. Cry out to God like David does. And understand, understand that God is far less concerned about your weakness than you are. How did Jesus do his great work of salvation? Through an act of strength or through an act of weakness? 2 Corinthians 13, he was crucified in weakness. 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. God wants you to be weak because he wants you to cling to Christ alone. In the end, you must believe that your weakness is not a problem for God. You see, God even wants you to fail sometimes. And the scripture says that he does bind all people over to disobedience that he might have mercy on some. My my conclusion to you is on your worst day, cling to Jesus. Cling to the grace and the steadfast mercy that is in him. And I guarantee you, he will lift you up in his time. Amen.